0: You're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You'll hear from Prop Tech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. In each episode, you'll hear about the market opportunities and trends driving the industry forward. TechNest is proudly produced by Finn Ledger in partnership with HW Media. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. Wow, what an interview we have for you today. Uh, I've got Austin Allison, CEO of Picasso. And you may have heard of this company. You know, they have been kind of getting in the, the news quite a bit lately, probably because within a very short amount of time, They have gone from zero to 100. From 30 to 300 employees in less than a year and a half's time, they're in over 40 markets currently providing co-ownership opportunities to those who want second homes. And in this interview, we get into the management, the tech, the complications, legal structures. Austin shares a ton of insights into building an organization like this. And this isn't his first rodeo. You know, his first initial uh, prop tech company, you may have heard of it, called Dot Loop, sold to Zillow several years back. And he's obviously taking lessons from that and building another rocket ship of a prop tech company. There's so much packed in here, I can't possibly describe it all well enough. Let, you're just gonna have to listen in. Let's jump to it. Hey, Austin, welcome to the show. Hey, Nate. It's so
1: great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Those listening may be hearing this on a Tuesday, but it's actually a Saturday, and so I am greatly appreciative of you taking aside the time. Um, I have a ton of things I want to ask you about, Um, but as we do on this show, we have a tradition. I'm going to allow you to go ahead first, introduce yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do. Great.
1: Thank you. So, I'm Austin Allison, co-founder and CEO of Picasso, and you know I've been a real estate guy pretty much my entire life. I grew up in a small town north of Cincinnati, Ohio. My dad was a carpenter, uh, so I was swinging a hammer from age three or four years old, and um, that sort of inspired a love for real estate. So when I turned 18, I started selling real estate as a licensed agent, and I did that to pay my way through through undergrad and then law school. And um, that led to my first company, which was a company called Dotloop. And we started Dotloop in 2009, uh, grew it over a period of six or seven years and became part of Zillow in 2015, where I stayed on for about four years and uh, left about three years ago uh, to take a little time off and and start my next company. and, And the next company is Picasso.
0: Wow. So, I mean, th- th- there's a lot in there, obviously. Um, and then you mentioned started selling real estate at 18, but you bought your first house even before that, right? Eh?
1: Yeah, I bought my first house when I was 17. And you, I don't think you're legally allowed to buy a house when you're 17. So it was actually in my parents' name, but you know, it was my house. I was paying the loan it, and it was my money for the down payment. It was a $40,000 home. And at that point in time, you could get a, a loan uh, for, with just 10% down, and they called it a, a stated income loan, where I just basically stated my income. There was no proof of, uh, of the actual income. So I stated my income and got a loan, and yeah, that was, that was my first property, and, and renovated it uh, with my father, and uh, again, it just really inspired a, a love for this industry that, that you know, would later influence most of my career.
0: Yeah, I, I point that out because I, I think there's such a uh, an importance in, in the world of prop tech and anything that, you know, in this industry, those who have the hands-on experience and then later on build the technology skills and marry the two. Um, I think oftentimes I see the most friction when it's the opposite way around. Uh, so those who really know boots on the ground, uh, what's happening in the world of real estate, I think enable to build the best uh, tech. I am very positive that most people listening to this show have heard of Picasso and have seen it. And you guys have been making a lot of waves. But for formality's sake, what problems is Picasso working to solve right now?
1: Yeah, well, let me provide a little context in the origin story. And, I, and that'll serve as a good foundation to answer the question around the problem that we're solving. So where I grew up in in Cincinnati, Ohio, was or north of Cincinnati, You know, it was, it was a modest upbringing. We lived... Paycheck to paycheck, uh, and I mentioned that because we definitely never had a second home. For me, a second home was what it is for most people—just a dream, not a reality. So I had been, you know, dreaming about second home ownership for for a long, long time. And along the way, when as I was growing Dot Loop, eventually my wife and I uh, had the opportunity to become second homeowners in Lake Tahoe, just north of San Francisco. And that second home ownership experience just fundamentally enriched our lives it turns out when you buy a home whether it's a primary or secondary you're not just buying a piece of real estate you're buying a second community a second group of friends a second life in many ways and that second home became our happy place the place where we make some of our most special memories with people that we love and care about so i wanted to find a way to make that dream possible for more people because i knew that I wasn't the only one that dreamed of home ownership. And like when we survey our target audience, about 75% of people aspire to own a second home. So this, if you think about it on the hierarchy of needs, after food and primary shelter, once family has some savings and discretionary income, second home ownership is something that they start to think about. But second home ownership has historically been unavailable to all but the wealthy elite because second homes are expensive and they're highly underutilized. The average second home is only used, you know, five or six weeks per year. So the problem that we're solving is an empty home problem. We're taking all these, you know, tens of millions of empty second homes that are sitting around the world. We're, we're taking those homes and, and making better use of them through this new ownership structure that we describe as co-ownership, which essentially allows a small group of people to co-own and, and occupy a home together. And um, that's that's kind of the the problem and the solution in a nutshell. And and the main benefit to the, or the main two benefits for, for consumers are, number one, the, the cost savings. There's a lot more people who can afford an eighth or a quarter of a home. And given that you, most people are only gonna use a second home an eighth or a quarter of the time, it works out pretty well. The second big benefit of Picasso is the, is the elimination of all the hassle. You know, all the hassle associated with home ownership or second home ownership, you know, we take care of. Everything from designing the home to repairing things to um, bill pay and maintenance, Picasso manages all of that so that as an owner, you just get to show up at your home and enjoy it with none of the headaches.
0: Yeah, and you answered quite a few things in there for me. I appreciate that. There, there's certainly even just thinking about like the designing and furnishing aspect of it. Um, you know, we we were at Lowe's last night looking at patio furniture. And it's just like there's so much to, I was like I don't want to shop for this, but if I was thinking about that for a second home, then you know, it's not in my neighbor. It's not in my neighborhood. So then I have to go stay in an empty house. And then right. figure out how I want to fill it and what's going to look right and if I'm going to like it. And then again, going back to like you're saying, like if I'm only there for a few weeks out of the year, then it's just kind of sitting, gathering dust or, you know, I I, I, per, exactly. I, I assume that there's probably a few kind of problems. You described some of them, but maybe what are some of those problems that others aren't – that may be overlooking? You know, when they want to buy a second home, but they, they may be overlooking or not thinking through some of the, the headaches that will come along with that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of headaches. Uh, I mean, if you just think about, for, for anyone who owns a primary home and think about all the headaches associated with primary home ownership and then multiply that by, you know, five or ten for second home ownership. And the reason why second home ownership is is more of a hassle than primary home ownership is, number one, you're usually several hundred miles away from the second home, as evidenced by the fact that it's, you know, a second home, not a primary um, second homes tend to be in markets with, um, or most second homes are in markets that have, you know, tougher elements to manage. Either mountain markets with snow or desert mount uh, markets with a lot of heat. You know, and and stuff breaks more often when the elements are, are stronger. Um, so those are just a few of the examples, but you know, it's it's hard to manage. It's just really hard to manage. And the other thing that's that's really a bummer about uh, second home ownership in the in the traditional sense where people would, would buy a whole home and let it sit empty for 10 months per year is that empty homes are actually really bad for society. Empty homes are bad for housing affordability because every home that's sitting empty is another home that's being taken off of the market and further right. constraining supply, which drives up home prices. Empty homes are bad for the environment because every empty home that's sitting empty means another home needs to be built to support demand. Um, Empty homes are also bad for community because they starve local economies. In second home destinations where people, you know, aren't using their home for six or eight or 10 months per year, it means that the local businesses aren't being supported during that time. And that's a big deal because the local economic activity is what keeps local communities alive. When, when you're an owner of a home supporting a local coffee shop, the person that's working at that coffee shop has an income, and that person can buy gas or hire a babysitter, and, you know, that's how the local economy goes around. So we're, we're solving that problem, too. We're making better use of these historically underutilized assets, which is good for society and good for community as well.
0: Yeah and then so and on that side you know talking through like some of the, the management of the properties you kind of alluded to here you know what exactly are the services that Picasso is taking care of it sounds like you know snow or maybe maintenance and what does that look like and then the follow up to that is is this an internal team that you guys have built and distributed to all those local areas or are you partnering with local companies already in those areas to kind of deliver those services
1: Yeah these are these are great questions so um, first, the, w- the way that we think about our business is it's a it's a tech enabled marketplace, a managed marketplace, if you will. And we enable kind of everything from aggregating the right properties, you know, basically finding the right homes that are of interest to our owners, to assembling the co-ownership structure, which is a professionally managed LLC, uh, to paying all the bills to coordinating repairs and maintenance. We design and furnish the homes. Uh, We provide financing. So if you want to buy a Picasso and you look on our website, you know, you just have to have 30% down and we'll enable you to finance the rest through our platform all the way through to the the resale transaction where we partner with local real estate agents um, on on all these transactions uh, to facilitate purchases and sales. So we manage all of that throughout the entire experience. And in terms of um, what we do internally versus uh, where we leverage third-party partners, Um, In every market, we have a home manager and a maintenance tech at a minimum. So a home manager is the the local point of contact for the owner and the one that's sort of overseeing the home on a a regular basis. The maintenance techs are coordinating repair and maintenance-related, you know, activities associated with the home. For all other services, we partner with third parties. So specialty contractors, you know, plumbers, electricians, um, cleaning companies. We partner with cleaners, uh, real estate agents. So, real uh, our model is actually, um, you know, our real estate agents are a really important part of our team because they're they're effectively an extension of our sales team. You know, we we have a partner program for real estate agents where we empower them with with you know materials and uh, sales enablement tools and stuff like that. And and this is a really great product for them because it's additive to their core business. You know, Picasso's co-ownership model empowers more people to become second homeowners. And that's really good for real estate agents. And it also kind of creates new inventory in a sense, because you're, you're taking what would have otherwise been an empty home and you're converting it to up to eight possible units. And that gives real estate agents more to sell. And that's pretty important in an environment where supply is so constrained, like the environment that we're in.
0: Yeah, I I tune into the Altos research report every Monday uh, from Mike, and I look at the inventory accounts nationwide. And it's just like crazy. Last time this year, we were thinking, there's just no way this goes any lower. And now we're looking at it again, like maybe it can, uh, despite all the factors. And I never even thought about, uh, as you're talking about this partner program with real estate agents and leveraging real estate agents, but also the idea that, you know, every one home essentially represents eight units or eight transactions right. with those real estate agents. I am curious if if an owner then wants to sell their their stake in in this home, how does that work? Do they go back to you? Do they sell it back to Picasso, and then Picasso then puts it to the open market, or does it go right to the open market?
1: Yeah, it, it, it works just like a normal real estate transaction with one exception, and that one exception is that the other co-owners have a right of first refusal to purchase your share. So let's say that you're one of you know, four people that own a home together, you've got four families that each own a quarter, and um, you paid half a million dollars for your quarter share, and then a year later you decide you wanna sell it, but you think it's worth 600,000 because the market has improved you pick your price and and we'll give you guidance on on what we think the the price is worth based on or what we think the the unit is worth based on past transactions but ultimately the seller picks their price and then we notify the other owners in the ownership group who have a first right of refusal to buy for six hundred thousand. if they choose to not buy it then gets listed you know like a normal home and syndicated hmm. to the world and whoever wants to come along and 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 buy it at that point can and you know a lot of the times our real estate agent partners will you know bring the new buyer in to purchase that share and anytime a real estate agent uh, is is representing a client on the transaction we pay full commission so even in markets where the standard for a co-op might be two and a half percent we always pay a full three percent commission and we try to make the process as easy as possible so that it kind of feels like a referral in, term, in terms of the workload.
0: Wow. That, I mean, that, first off, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear that you're paying at that full 3% because uh, obviously the, the growing trend in residential real estate is continual compression of cap rates. And certainly the higher up in price that yep. you get, it it seems more and more so that the the or, or the excuse me commission rate not cap rate right um, right it, you know, continues to con- compress. So as a real estate agent, I can see why this would be highly motivating to become a partner with you guys in a, yeah local area.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it helps that like I've spent my entire like I'm still a licensed real estate agent. For example, I, I mean, I don't actively sell, but I I keep it current. Um, so just growing up as a real estate agent and you know knowing um, How important real estate agents are, you know, as as professionals. And um, we were just really intentional about designing the business model in such a way that it uh worked really well for real estate agents too. You know, we 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 think that's a pretty important part of the strategy.
0: Now obviously owners want to use the home. They want to be there, they want to hang, bring the family for a cookout or you know, hang by the pool. Is there ever times when owners want to be there at the exact same time? And how does that get settled?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm sure there are times where owners wanna be there at the same time, but we've come up with a, a solution that solves for this. It's called SmartStay. And it's essentially a, a shared calendar with a series of rules and algorithms on the back end that ensure that the calendar is shared in a fair and equitable way amongst the ownership group. So if you own a quarter of the home, you're gonna be entitled to one quarter of the peak season, one quarter of the non-peak season, and one quarter of the holidays, for example. It's designed in such a way that no one person is able to dominate all the best dates. So if there's ever a scenario where, you know, multiple owners want to use the home on the same date, Smart Stay does a really effective job of of sort of distributing that date in such a way that no one person gets their unfair share. The other thing that's pretty important to note about um, usage of the home is that The more diverse the ownership group, the less inherent uh, kind of calendar conflicts you have in the first place. Because, um, and by diversity, I'm I'm referring mostly to diversity of of kind of home usage patterns. Like, if if you there are some people like where I where I have where my second home is in Lake Tahoe, um, it's a winter season and a summer season. My wife and I prefer the summer. You know, like we, we could go all winter without being at the Tahoe place and would be totally fine with that. But we love being there in the summer. There's other people that absolutely love being there in the winter because they like the winter sports and uh, they don't frequent there in the summer. So the more sort of um, synergy you can have amongst the ownership group through diversification, the better. There's also people like myself who prefer the shoulder season. You know, like 4th of July and New Year's are the two busiest weeks in Lake Tahoe. And I don't know if my wife and I in 10 years have ever been to Lake Tahoe on 4th <laughs> of July or New Year's, nor do we want to, right? We prefer the shoulder seasons where there's a little less traffic and and shorter lines and stuff like that. Um, but other people really love those two holidays because that's, you know, that's the family tradition. So there, there's a really diverse group of owners that own these homes together. And that along with the smart stay just enables it to work really well. And our, our homes are utilized on average, almost 90% of the time, um, which is incredibly strong. And that's a metric we're really proud yeah. of because it really validates that owners are, that these homes aren't empty anymore. You know, these homes are You're being- getting
0: their use at 90%. I mean, that's, That's a majority of the year versus what you shared earlier, which is, you know, four, maybe five weeks out of the year. Uh, I have to ask you this. Uh, There are some criticisms I've read about the Picasso model saying, guys, this is nothing new. Uh, This is a timeshare just with a new bow and ribbon tied to it. Um, How do you, you know, and and of course, like there's been models of co-ownership in real estate for as long as people can remember. We've been buying and selling land that way. We've been building apartments, complexes, industrial, every every asset type. So I'm curious in your own words, your words how do you respond to that criticism?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I re- respond to it, I, I think it's worth highlighting that anytime you have a, a, a new, something that's perceived to be new or different, it is often misunderstood or resisted in the early days. And I experienced this at my first company, Dotloop, where, I mean, for the first four or five years, we were getting cease and desist letters from trade associations, real estate firms, title companies, banks, you know, all of our critics were essentially questioning the validity of e-signatures and the legality of having um, forms, contract forms in digital format. And, you know, like, let's just focus on the e-signature criticisms for a moment. Like people basic, there was a, there was a, I guess, just a societal sort of resistance to change whereby e-signatures felt uncomfortable for people. So they started to say things like, these things are unenforceable or they're less secure. So you're inviting more fraud by allowing e-signatures to happen. It turns out that e-signatures are actually way more secure. And way more trackable in, in terms of you know, tracking down fraud and totally legal. They've been legal since 2000 when the Clinton administration you know, passed the law. Mm-hmm. But you would have never known that you know, in the first four years of Dotloop. It was just nothing but resistance and criticism. So, and you see that across every other industry. I mean, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, electric vehicles were laughable. You know, nobody ever thought that electric vehicles would get to a point where they were mainstream oh, yeah. and with enough battery power to drive at the speeds that that were usable and had utility and the distances that we need. And now not only are, are electric vehicles commonplace, but there's states that actually mandate, you know, emission requirements. Like California has certain emission standards that manufacturers have to meet to even produce cars in the state. Um, And that all started from an electric vehicle sustainability movement that was once laughable and met with lots of resistance. So there is a little bit of, you know, misunderstanding related to co-ownership. And one thing that, you know, the critics are right about is that this is no different than what's been happening for a long time. That's a true statement. Co-ownership has been around for a long time. Friends have been owning homes together. Family members own homes together. You know, the, my primary home and my secondary home were both, I bought off of co-owned sellers. The last, my primary home in Napa Valley where I live, I bought it off of um, an elderly woman. She was uh, 88 and her two adult children. They owned it. It was a co-ownership model, right? They, the children just happened to, you know, inherit their ownership through the family, but the legal structure and framework is no different than what Picasso does. So co-ownership is very, very common. Um, But, you know, it's never really been uh, made available in a professional way like this. The only way to do co-ownership in the past was DIY, where people self-organize and do their own maintenance and do their own calendaring. So Picasso is just providing a service that enables people to do co-ownership more efficiently, but the model's been around for a long time. And it's it's very different than a timeshare. I mean, the, the biggest difference is that you actually own real estate. With a timeshare, you're prepaying for the right to use time in a hotel room. In this scenario, you own real estate. You know It's no different than if you and four or five of your, your best friends bought a home together. It's very simple, you, know, you, you just own a home.
0: Yeah, that actually makes me think of an idea and I don't know if this is in the product roadmap. If I come to you with four or five of my friends and I say, uh, we've got this house, can, can we put it on the Picasso platform? because we don't know where to start with the contract and the maintenance. And so, so long as Picasso is in my market, can I, can I bring you the house and say, can we put it on the platform?
1: Yeah, you absolutely can, provided that it's a home that, we, that meets our criteria. So we have a, it's hard to even describe what it is that we look for, but we have a term internally called Picasso worthy. Is the home Picasso worthy? And if it's Picasso worthy, which basically means, is it a home that, you know, is going to be desirable for other people who are looking in that area, uh, because we don't we don't want a, a home on our you know in our ecosystem that you know isn't going to have buyers on the other side of it. You know, it's the sure. the model works really well when the home meets the needs of our owners. It has the right number of bedrooms, the right style, the right amenities. But yeah, provided that you bring a home that's Picasso worthy, absolutely, we'd help you with that. But practically speaking, that doesn't. Um, happen very often mainly because um most people it's it's hard to find enough friends that want to own an eighth or a quarter of a home with you you know to self-organize um the second thing is even if you can find the the group of friends there's all these other issues associated with co-ownership that are pretty problematic in the diy use case you know one example is financing If you self-organize and do DIY co-ownership, your mortgage is going to have joint and several liability, which means that if one person defaults, all the other friends are on the hook for that default. Mm -hmm. In Picasso's model, Picasso's on the hook. One person defaults, we step in, we take care of of the default so that the other owners don't have to worry about it. You know, another big issue with DIY co-ownership is all the little decisions that need to be made, everything from design to repairs to bill pay. And usually what happens if friends self-organize and own homes together is by the end of the experience, you know, one year, two years, three years in, they end up frenemies because while their intentions start out good, it's really hard to reach an agreement on all these little details. So Picasso serves as the intermediary uh, so that we handle all those little details and it, it removes the, the probability of owners getting into disputes about these little items related to
0: the home. I appreciate that. You, you you talk about Picasso-worthy, which is alluding to really the sensitivity you have in building a very strong brand, and in a very short amount of time, you guys have really established uh, a brand that I think people recognize. It's a name that people know what it is, or at least they have an idea of what you do. And you know, from a marketing perspective, being a marketing guy, you know, oftentimes brand can early on can come at a sacrifice of actually like traction in the business. You know, we put all this effort into visual and to what does it mean, but it doesn't necessarily translate to direct response yet you guys have, you know, last year had a killer year. How are you finding this balance of early on building a brand that's recognizable, you know, very top of funnel and at the same time focusing on gaining real meaningful traction?
1: Yeah, well, it like anything in in life or business, it all starts with the people. So we have a a tremendous team of people. Our our marketing team is led by a woman named Whitney Curry, who's fantastic. We worked together at Zillow. She was one of the first hires that my co-founder Spencer made at Zillow and and went on to to run a lot of Zillow marketing, you know, after uh, 13 14 years. So she's a very seasoned marketer and and her and and her entire team they, you know, they know what they're doing. So that that's where it, where it all starts. The second thing that I would say, though, is that the model, this this ownership structure, really resonates with people. You know, owning a second home for one eighth the cost with none of the hassle is is a value proposition that resonates with a lot of people. So I think when people learn about the brand, they learn about the category it delivers on a a dream that they've been thinking about for a long time in such a way that enables them to recall the brand in a really strong way. Um, Because like long before the pandemic, second home ownership demand has been strong. About, as I mentioned before, early in the podcast, uh, about 75% of the people that we survey aspire to own second homes. This is a very widespread, you know, dream that people have. And the number one thing that co- stops people from realizing their dream is the cost. You know, they just can't afford or can't justify owning the whole thing. And the number two thing is hassle. Even if they can't afford it, they can't justify all the headaches associated with a home that they're only going to use 10 or 15 percent of the time. So Picasso solves those problems. And 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 that's really interesting for a lot of people. The other thing that I think has happened, and this was just pure luck, you know, not, um, not the result of hard work, um, although we have worked very hard, um, is the timing associated with the work from home phenomenon. You know, the pandemic introduced a lot of flexibility for a lot more people. There's just more families now that have the freedom to work remote, part-time or full-time, which means that more people have the ability to use a second home five or six or eight weeks a year. And that was hard for families where you have to be in the office five or six days a week. Now it's less hard. So more people are able to act on their second home Dreams than ever before, and I think um, you know the 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 category that we introduced and are pioneering it just resonates you know with a lot of people at the right moment in time
0: yeah you you guys have really expanded uh quite a bit in the in the last year across the u s and I think you even uh, recently announced a, a very new market outside the u s uh, so what's the new market that you just recently announced as well as how many markets within the u s are you already set up to do business
1: so we're currently in almost 40 destinations throughout the US and Europe um, that's up from uh, maybe like six or eight destinations or so a year ago so we're we're growing very quickly uh, we're about 300 employees now fully distributed uh, meaning we have no office location um, and our team is spread across I don't know 35 states and six or seven countries uh, in terms of new markets that we've added recently, um, in Europe, we recently added London, which is very exciting. We announced that last week. Um, we recently added Hawaii, which is also very exciting. and then Scottsdale is another one that that we added recently as well. But we're planning to to you know grow to sixty destinations or so uh, by the end of this year, so you can expect to see a lot more markets coming online in the coming months.
0: Congrats on the new markets uh, and also the, the headcount in a very short period of time. Uh, that's really impressive. Um, that actually leads us right into a new segment. I haven't really done this every show, uh, and I really want to. But I'm gonna call. It, I'm calling it from the audience. I don't know what else to call it. So here All I've right. done. I've, I've collected a few questions from other prop tech leaders uh, that we're gonna hit you with here. First one comes from Ryan Letzizer, uh, CEO of Obi. For listeners who don't know, that's actually where I'm head of marketing. Uh, So that one was a really easy one for me to source. Question is, what's the hardest time and headcount for a company? And I'm imagining you may have already surpassed multiple of those in your growth at Picasso.
1: Yeah, I would say the hardest time, I mean, every every time in the early years I find is hard in its own way. Um, There's a, you know, I'm a big, a fan of, like, following other entrepreneurs and business leaders' work um, just to learn and improve my skills. And, you know, one uh, entrepreneur and and business leader that I've read and followed is Ray Dalio. And he, in his book called The Principles, he describes that after, you know, this really successful business career that he had, starting from nothing and building this this large firm, um, that the real secret to life is around embracing the struggle life is really just about you know some highs and some lows and those low points where you're struggling is kind of where the character is built and you know those are the moments that you look back on and and really appreciate so i found in entrepreneurship that that quote around like really figuring out how to embrace the struggle is the magic like that that if there is a shortcut and you know a silver bullet that's it it's figuring out how to embrace the struggle because Startups are just nothing but struggle at every phase in the in the pre product market fit phase. I I mean that's probably the one that I would describe as the biggest struggle. Like before your get business gets to a point in time where you truly have product market fit. Like at Picasso now, you know we have very strong product market fit. You know we're we're able to replicate the model in lots of different markets and grow very quickly. You can only do that once you have strong product market fit. And the reason why I think that's probably the hardest part of the journey is because once you truly have product market fit, you kind of know what it feels like, you know what it looks like, you see that you're delivering on the the experience and on the mission for the customer. And that is just so rewarding that it it becomes like this invincible force. Like we do everything for the mission and for the customer. And when you know that the product is, is in our case, enriching people's lives, um, you know, you can't be stopped. You know, you just... We wake up every day seeing people's lives get enriched and that just motivates us. But before you have product market fit, it's hard to see that and and it's a struggle. In terms of the headcount, I would say that, you know, it's super, I find it to be super easy up to 50 or 100 team members, um, you know, particularly like the first 50. Uh, Up to that point in time, it's like everybody's still kind of, got their hands in the mix and everybody's aware of what's going on because it's a small team you start to get above 50 and you then have you know management layers that that are are being built out and different specialization that needs to evolve around the different departments and you got to work a lot harder on on communicating and and making sure that um, we're growing efficiently but also communicating constantly so that everybody's in the loop, you know, as as we become more uh horizontal in the way that the business is structured. But I would say, you know, after a hundred, um, that becomes a lot more important, you know, because after after one to two hundred people, you know, it's it's hard to even remember everybody's name. You know what I mean? And like at Picasso, we're fully distributed. So it's not like I get to see everybody in the office every day. Like there's many people that are company that I've never even met in person. Now, I try to meet everybody in person at different events that we do and onboarding and when I go to markets, but you know, once, once you get above two or 300, I think it becomes harder for sure. And then the, I would say the hardest part of all as it relates to people um, is rapid scale. Like we're at almost 300 people now and at the beginning of last year, so like you know, five quarters ago, we were at about 30 people. So, to go from 30 to 300 in a year and a quarter, you know, it's pretty hard. It's hard to maintain consistency uh, and strength in the culture. And it's just so important that you do that. You cannot screw up the culture. That's the most important part of all in hyper growth. But the faster you grow, the harder it is to keep culture, you know, really, really strong.
0: Uh, I've got another one here from Chuck Hadamer, CMO of okay. Poplar Homes. And I'm going to slightly edit this uh, question here to, to expand a little bit. Is Picasso a technology company or real estate company?
1: Uh, I think we're at the intersection of people, technology, and real estate. Um, and, that, and that we describe it, as I mentioned before, we describe it more as like a tech-enabled marketplace. Um, but the technology is super important for sure. I mean, everything from the way that we aggregate supply, to the way that we aggregate demand, to the whole owner experience, um, to the back office sort of what we describe as service operations, all the things that you don't see around operating these homes, all of that is very technology enabled. And as a Picasso owner, when you become an owner, you get access to an app. And within the app, you can see everything that you would want to know related to your home, the financial details, you know, amenity related things. but you can also schedule, so that that smart state technology that I described before is a really—that's one example of a really important part of the technology stack that, that really makes this ownership model seamless. So yeah, we definitely couldn't do what we do without
0: technology. Got it. And then the last one here, kind of uh, almost the same question or related uh, from two different people. Uh, Daniel Di Bartolo, he's a product manager at Google. And then Clayton Collins, CEO at HousingWire, which I happen to be supporting. Their, their yeah, I the love moment. it.
1: Great shirt.
0: Um, you know, how do housing market dynamics, rapid home price appreciation, rising rates impact the environment for Picasso's model?
1: Yeah. So that anytime I answer this question, I always like to provide a caveat, which is that you know we don't know for sure because our company's only two years old and we've never you know lived lived through one of these environments. So. I'll know a lot more five or ten years from now than I know today, but I'll share uh, how we think about it today and sort of what we expect and what we're currently experiencing. You know we Second home ownership, um, th- I mean there's no question that an inflationary and rising interest rate environment uh, impacts whole home sales because you know the movement, if interest rates go up, you know one or two percent, the impact on monthly payments for people, is real. It's a big, big deal, right? Um, because of that, you know, second home ownership actually becomes even less inf- affordable in the whole home model um, in a rising interest rate environment. So we actually think there's a scenario that co-ownership becomes even more interesting in a rising interest rate environment because whole home ownership becomes that much less affordable. The second thing that we think about is um, that when you are buying an eighth or a quarter of a home, the impact on your monthly payment from an interest rate increase is pretty minimal relative to what you're purchasing. Like if you're spending half a million dollars on a four million dollar, you know, for a unit in a four million dollar home through Picasso, um, and you're putting 150 thousand down under our 30 percent down program, and the interest rate goes up by one percent, I mean, the the difference in that is maybe like a hundred bucks a month or something. Like it's it's effectively at that price point, it's it's kind of like a rounding error. You know, it's just not material relative to the impact that interest rates have on whole home payments. So we actually don't think that the co-ownership is really going to be negatively impacted in a meaningful way by rising interest rates. You know, it, it might. I guess it might slow transaction volume a, a little bit depending on how high rates go, but so far we haven't experienced any of that and we think it actually becomes... More interesting because it it truly is the smarter uh, and more responsible way to own. It's more responsible fiscally, but it's also more responsible socially to only own as much of the house as you need, as opposed to owning all of it and having it sit empty for eight or ten months per year.
0: Yeah, this brings us into what I like to think of as like the, the finishing stretch, bottom end of the show. My favorite segment for the future, for the future is a game where I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Austin, are you ready to play?
1: I'm ready to play.
0: Let's do it. Uh, question number one, what does Picasso look like one year from now?
1: One year from now, Picasso will be in double the amount of markets that we have today. We'll, we'll be you know 500 uh, or more, five to 600 employees. Um, we'll still be fully distributed and we'll have a wider range of you know markets and and therefore price points available on our platform today. We're we're primarily only in very high end and luxury markets. Um, we plan to as as we go wider. You know we you average home prices will come down. We'll always be luxury within a market, meaning we're always buying in the you know two to four times the median price point. But once you get into markets where median prices are lower, you know, naturally, that's going to bring the Picasso share price down in those markets a little bit. And I'm really excited about that because it'll make second home ownership accessible to a lot more people.
0: Yeah. If I, if I can just insert a vote for the Black Hills in here at the moment, right. um, I'd like to put, my, put down a vote for that. Uh, question number two, uh, what's one market you think will grow for co-ownership or second home ownership? but isn't often talked about?
1: Well, I think co-ownership is going to grow in every market because I think about co-ownership as just the next chapter of the housing evolution. Like, we don't have a choice as a society uh, but to adopt co-ownership. There's just a shortage of supply and there's an, an abundance of demand. And there's no way that I can see or that anybody has been able to see Um, where new construction is going to be able to keep up, you know, with the demands of society. And that's particularly true in second home markets um, where supply is very short and there's this new influx of demand following the work-from-home phenomenon. So co-ownership is going to become more mainstream everywhere. In terms of markets that are, are talked about less, I mean, there's a bunch of them. The pandemic has introduced a bunch of these types of markets. And I would say, I'll just describe them kind of generally. They're, they're the markets that are just a, a bit on the periphery of major metros. Like one example, we, we issue these uh, second home market reports once a quarter. And in our last second home market report, uh, the highest county with, or the, the county with the highest amount of home price appreciation in one year was called Sumter County in Florida, which is just between Tampa and Orlando. You know, that's a county that most people have never heard of, you know, on a national scale, but yet there's so much demand there that it had the highest home price appreciation uh, in a given year, and that's because the people, you know, in Tampa and Orlando now have more flexibility to move out a little bit further, you know, than in a world where they don't have to be in the office every day, so people are moving out and um, sort of sprawling a bit to get more space, more privacy. Um, And there's, you know, a hundred examples of markets like that uh, that are just on the periphery of either a second home destination or a major metro.
0: Yeah. Question number three, what's one industry trend you think will continue, but you wish would go away? Oh,
1: wow, that's an interesting, that I wish would go away. Well, probably the one around crunching real estate agent commissions, you know, like, there's, you you mentioned it earlier that for as long as I've been in the industry 15 years or so, you know, people have been talking about compressing real estate agent commissions. And you know, I'm just not a believer that that needs to happen or that that's going to happen. Um, and I think it's I, I'm probably and I don't think it should happen because and I'm probably somewhat advantaged, well, or maybe disadvantaged depending on how you look at it. In the sense that I'm a real estate agent, right? So I know how much hard work goes into selling real estate, and I know what having a great real estate agent means. When you have a great real estate agent, they earn their commission. You know, it's it's the bad real estate agent experiences that that cause people to believe that real estate agents are overpaid and the commissions should be compressed. So I don't know. At, at some point in my lifetime, I would love to see that trend reverse, where people stop, you know, talking about cutting the agent out of the deal. Um, and instead, just focus on quality. Like by no means am I a fan of a crappy agent getting paid, but the good agents who do great work and add, add a lot of value to their clients and to the transaction, I think deserve to get paid and, and not have to, you know, defend their commission so aggressively. Um, so that would be one that would be nice to see reversed.
0: I'd like to take this time to apologize to the entire industry uh for the level of service that I provided in my eight months as an active real estate agent selling. Real estate.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have you to blame, huh mate? <laughs> I
0: love it I did okay. um all right, last one here. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances?
1: Will fade away, you said,
0: dramatically change or fade away
1: uh, dramatically change. Uh, I think probably virtual, something around virtual buying, you know, virtual tours, virtual staging. I mean, I feel like we've made a lot of progress in this area. Like, there, there's definitely more transactions that are happening in Whole Homes and through Picasso uh, where people buy sight unseen. But it's still surprising to me that the number's not higher of people who buy sight unseen. Like, mm. we, we've got so much technology today that should enable someone to get a complete, you know, picture of the home and the neighborhood and what it feels like at different times throughout the day. And I just don't know that we that all that technology has really been sort of merchandised and integrated, you know, into an experience that that truly makes it possible. I mean, we're getting close, but it still feels kind of, you know, fragmented to me. And the fact that real estate agents are still doing, you know, FaceTime tours and stuff virtually. To That's how to we the <laughs> home. I, yeah, me too. And I, I mean, the FaceTime tour, I think, is actually kind of the best. I mean, I love Matterport and all these other tools, but for me, nothing's better than that FaceTime tour. Where like, you're yeah. talking to the real estate agent, they're giving you the context, you they can turn the phone around and show you the views like, but I, I think there, I think technology could do way more. You know, for um, for that experience so that someday, I mean, we should be able to get to a point where, you know, 20, 30, you know, 40 percent of transactions could be sight unseen. Yeah. At least at least for the initial purchase, obviously, a lot of people would probably want to see it before they close. But it's still striking to me that so many people need to tour the home physically.
0: Yeah, the one, the one thing I will say on this, and maybe I'm a weirdo, um, but I asked my agent, what does the house smell like when he went to every home for us? Because if they had dogs, I wanted to know, if you walk in and smell that, that gives me an idea of the damage in the carpet and the floors, you yep. know, that I was thinking through the HVAC itself. Um, but right. that's, we'll, we'll have to get to a place where you can digitally get a, a sense of the smell of the house. <laughs> Totally. Um, before totally. we can totally go for that. All right, last three here. These are all about you, Austin, so our listeners get to know you better. First okay. one is, what are you reading?
1: The Helicopter Flying Handbook.
0: <laughs> Riveting.
1: Uh, outside of outside of that, there's a book that uh, I'm reading called The Goal, which was referred to me by one of our investor investors and a guy who's become uh, a, a mentor to me, Jeff Wilkie from Amazon. Uh, I've been reading it for a while though, because it's kind of a heavy, it's kind of a dense read. And I just haven't been able to really speed through it like I do most of the books, but that's one that I'm in the middle of.
0: A book I've never heard of, but 6 billion copies sold. So maybe I've been- Yeah, it's a big uh, one. <laughs> I need to get on it. Question number two, who are you learning from?
1: Everyone at all times. Um, I, I mean, I think we should all be learning from everyone, but if I had to pick, you know, who I'm focused on learning the most from, at the moment, it would just be our, our owners, you know, at, at Picasso, like we're, we're providing the service that helps people to co-own homes. It's all about the owners and all about their ownership experience. And we're in the early days of, um, providing this service. So we're learning a ton from our owners every single day. And I want to continue to do that. Awesome.
0: Last one here. What inspires you?
1: Uh, I would say again, lots, but if I had to pick one right now, well, in general, I would say it's progress. Like I like, I like the struggle. I like the progress, whether it's, you know, progress in business or progress with my hobbies or progress with my, you know, my child. Um, I I just like progress and sort of the, the give and take associated with progress and struggle. Um, and then a little bit more that 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 answer is pretty deep something that's a little more surface level is around delivering on the mission for customers like for me there's nothing more rewarding you know like being part of a company uh whether it's company you founded or not like being part of a company that makes people's lives better is super rewarding and there's nothing more rewarding than having customers tell you that so uh, i'm really inspired by that
0: Austin, this has been a power hour. I greatly appreciate the Saturday and your time in working through all these questions. I could have another hundred for you, but uh, I have to meet up with my running buddies. And it sounds like you also uh, probably still have to get your run in for the day. Yes, I do. Before we close out, if people want to learn more about Picasa, connect to you, what are the best places to do that? How do I do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely check us out uh, at picasso.com. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. Or download our app is, is even better. Um, and then we're on all the social channels. And my my Twitter is uh, G Austin Allison. My first name's Gregory. I just go by Austin. So G Austin Allison is, is me on Twitter. And you can find me there.
0: Very cool. Well, I'll find you on Twitter. I promise not to blow it up too much. Sorry for all the notifications the other day. Uh, people had ideas of what they wanted me to ask you. Uh, But until next time, uh, we'll see you later. All right. See ya. Well, thanks for listening to the TechNest podcast. You can always get future episodes delivered to you directly by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app store. You can also join the newsletter. Head over to technest.io or finledger.com slash newsletters to get all future episodes, updates, and more sent to you right into your inbox. Last but not least, we appreciate your support. Please go ahead and give us a rating and review in your app store. This helps others discover the podcast and know that it's a great, worthy listen. We'll see you next week.